What did the murder of a complete stranger have to do with the removal of a girl in 1910 Brooklyn from her aunt's care? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. Hello and welcome to Footnoting History. For those of you who follow Footnoting History on Facebook or Twitter, and I hope you all do, you may have noticed a picture of my father at Battle Abbey that I shared for the 951st anniversary of the Battle of Hastings. My father has often been my partner in attending academic conferences, but he's also one of the reasons why I love cemeteries. And no, that is not as depressing as it sounds. Or at least I don't think so. To my father, a cemetery is where one visits dearly departed relatives and spends an enjoyable afternoon doing so. And here, well, he inspired this episode too, even though it actually doesn't have to do with a cemetery. The last time I visited my parents, I was telling them about my research on Toby Grant and Washington Park Cemetery. The Ancestry.com account I use actually belongs to my father, so he had noticed the search history and had a few questions. But then he offered a story of his own. For the last four or so decades, you see, my father's hobby has been our family's genealogy. He has binders full of genealogy. But given that he's been doing this for over 40 years, he has largely exhausted our family tree and has now taken up looking into the farthest branches that he can fill out. And that's how he came upon the story of Ida Delancey, an incredibly distant relative by marriage of my mother. Ida's fiancé, Howard Toms, and Ida's niece, Anna Hohen. And it is their story, and how it fits into the story of the United States and New York in the first quarter of the 20th century, that I want to share with you today. According to an article in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, published on Thursday, January 10, 1910, neighbors had complained about Ida Delancey's care of her 10-year-old niece who lived with her. The problem, according to the article? Ida worked in a restaurant, and she and her niece lived above it. That part was fine. What was the problem? The people who frequented the restaurant. They were men of Chinese descent. That wasn't all, though. That problem was further exacerbated because Ida and her niece were both white. According to the police who went to investigate this alleged ill treatment of the niece, Ida stated that until recently she had been a teacher at a Chinese missionary school in Chinatown, and she was engaged to a man of Chinese descent, Howard Toms, who owned a laundry in Hell's Kitchen, a neighborhood on the west side of Manhattan. Based on this evidence, the police removed 10-year-old Anna from her aunt's care, and a judge in the Brooklyn's Children Court sent the girl to the Brooklyn Training School and Home for Girls. Now, some of you might be sitting there and saying, come now, there must be more than this behind the scenes to have this child removed. To fully understand why Ada's relationship with a man of Chinese descent and her alleged employment in a restaurant, which was frequented by men of Chinese descent, was enough to have her niece removed from her care, we need to begin to unpack the layers of U.S. and New York history and why this actually was all enough to send Anna to a home for girls, albeit a seemingly nice home for girls. In today's episode, we will first go over what we know or believe about the events that led Anna to live with her aunt, the murder that increased already existing tensions against Chinese Americans, the home Anna was sent to, and the women's lives after this experience. First then, in 1910, Ida Delancey was around 42 years old. Shortly after the Civil War, she had been born in New York to Abraham Delancey and Harriet Reed. Abraham was a New Yorker himself 
and had also served for the Union Army during the Civil War. In 1866, he and Harriet, also American-born, married, and over the next 15 years, they had six children. Ida was the oldest, and Henrietta was the youngest. In the 1870 census, they are living in Brooklyn, and Abraham's job was listed as a huckster, which is similar to a door-to-door salesman. Over the next two censuses, state and national, Abraham's employment varies between produce peddler and vendor. He died in 1882 of consumption, which we now would call tuberculosis. Ida was 15 years old at his death, and Henrietta, the youngest, was about four. In 1897, and at 19 years old, Henrietta married Richard Hohen, and they had three children, including Anna, over the next nine years. In 1906, Richard was jailed for abandoning his wife, and then, when released from jail after six months, he was immediately arrested for grand larceny. Allegedly, he had stolen $40 worth of carpet. But by 1907, Henrietta had met Philo House, another Brooklynite, and together they had three children, but did not get married until November 1910, which was nearly a year after the events we are discussing here. Most likely, or a possible interpretation of why they didn't get married, is that even though Richard had abandoned his family, that they were not formally divorced, and so they had to wait potentially for legal requirements, and that is something that I'm actually researching right now. It is possible that over this time, caring for multiple small children was a lot for Henrietta, and she had asked her sister, Ida, who was older and childless, to care for the girl. According to the article in which Anna's removal is described, Henrietta gave the court the explanation that her husband had left six years before and she wanted Anna raised in a Baptist home. She does not mention the father of her younger children, who she married before the year ended. And in fact, she probably did not do this because she realized the court would not look kindly on the fact that she also was unmarried and yet living with a man and had children with him. Until a short time before Anna's removal, Ida had worked in Lower Manhattan as a missionary and teacher at the Morning Star Missionary for the Chinese community. But due to events we will discuss in a few minutes, she had returned to Brooklyn and opened up the restaurant that we mentioned at the beginning, the one that was frequented by Chinese men from Manhattan. Missionary schools were created by various Christian denominations, and the school Ida claimed to work at was under Baptist leadership, hence, again, why her sister would say that she sent Anna to a home where she could be raised to be a good Baptist. The goal of these schools was to educate Chinese students in both reading, writing, arithmetic, and religion. Many students were adult males, and the teachers, often young women, would tutor them one-on-one, Initially, and to the public, this relationship between teacher and student was presented as that of mother and child. But as more and more tutors fell in love with their students and vice versa, it became evident that the close relationships being created were more romantic than maternal in nature. In New York City's Chinatown, some of the schools were supported by the Chinese Guild, which tried to help Chinese immigrants have jobs, safe places to live, and to give them legal protection, especially against the racist acts they were often victims of. Ida's school, Morningstar Mission, was located in New York City's Chinatown. It is possible that it is through this school she met Howard Toms, a Chinese-American born in California around 1872, which was 10 years before the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act sharply curtailed immigration from China to the United States. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle included a letter Ida wrote to her sister, Henrietta, in which she said that the day after Anna was removed from their care, Ida and Howard went to Hoboken, New Jersey, and were legally married. And Howard is sorry that they didn't do it before because then Anna wouldn't have been taken. In the letter, Ida also attested towards Howard's citizenship. 
Now, according to a 1910 census, in which Howard and Ida are by then listed as man and wife, and it would have happened after their marriage at the end of January, both of Howard's parents were noted as born in China. Howard, though, is again listed as his birthplace of California, but then he is also described as a naturalized citizen, which would indicate that he was an immigrant who had become a citizen. This goes against what Ida described Howard as in saying that he had citizenship because he was born here. In the 1930 census, Howard again is listed as born in California, but the columns for immigration and naturalized citizens are blank. So the yes in the 1910 census may have been a mistake, an assumption, or a misunderstanding. As far as we can determine, Howard was born in California, and he had citizenship he did not require naturalization. Also, they did eventually get married. But when Anna was taken, they weren't married. And again, her mother, realizing that this would be an issue for herself as well, also didn't mention that she was not married to the man she was living with. But was this really enough to have a girl removed from someone's home in 1910? Well, part of the cause stemmed from the suspicion that white Americans had toward those of Chinese descent. A recent murder in New York further deepened these divides. According to Yale professor Mary Liu in her book, The Chinatown Trunk Mystery, on June 18, 1909, the body of a 19-year-old Elsie Siegel was found in a trunk in an apartment in Chinatown. The resident of the room, William Leon Ling, who was known as Leon and worked as a waiter at a Chinese restaurant, was missing. Elsie was a white, middle-class woman and the granddaughter of a well-known Union general from the Civil War. She and her mother had volunteered for four years at the missionaries in Chinatown, specifically the Chinatown and Bowery Rescue Settlement for Girls, which focused on not helping the Chinese community, but white women who either lived in or visited Chinatown, and it was believed needed to be instructed in proper womanhood, especially Victorian domesticity. The women that Elsie and her mother counseled were often prostitutes or drug addicts. It was during one of their days downtown that Elsie and her mother stopped in a Chinese restaurant for lunch and met Leon Ling. Elsie, at the time, was 18 years old. Most Americans still thought of men of Chinese descent as having long braided hair and wearing robes, but Leon was considered by many a dandy. According to reports, Leon was well-dressed and, in our modern parlance, smooth. He was also 30 to Elsie's 18. Elsie fell for him, but... She wasn't only involved with Leon, but another man of Chinese descent as well, Chu Ging. Leon apparently became jealous that Elsie was seeing another man, asked Elsie to visit him in his apartment, killed her, put her body in a trunk in his room, locked the door, and disappeared. After a few days, Leon's uncle became worried that he hadn't seen his nephew and asked the police to come check his locked room. The foul smell from the room, remember it was summer and there was no air conditioning, might have led him to decide he didn't want to be involved with anything behind that door. In the trunk, police found Elsie's body, and in an incredibly macabre comment included in the newspaper articles about the discovery, they stated they knew it was her because of her beautiful pearly white teeth. Her family, though, wasn't as sure, until the bracelet the body had on was shown to her parents. Her father continued to deny it was his daughter. After all, how awful to have a daughter found in the apartment of a Chinese man! but Elsie's mother collapsed on being given the bracelet. Elsie's body was not the only item of interest found in the room. The police also found several letters written by Elsie to Leon, and letters written by other women to Leon. Apparently, he had made an impression on many women. 
By that point, however, Leon was long gone, and he was actually never found. Instead, Elsie's death was used to support the belief that Chinese men could not be trusted, and any white girl who became involved with them was going to meet a bad end. Elsie became the cautionary tale. And that is why a few months later, according to Ida herself, she had stopped working at the missionary school and returned to Brooklyn. But Ida did not cut ties with the Chinese community. And that reason is why Ida Delancey's neighbors called child services to come and take her niece away, because Ida lived with a Chinese man, Howard Toms. Three days after the first article appeared, there was a follow-up article in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle where the head of the school that Ida had claimed to work at said she had not, in fact, worked there. He said he had been there for 15 years, and she was not anyone he remembered at all. It is possible that Ida lied, but it is also possible that the head of the school didn't want to be involved with another court case to do with young white women and a Chinese man, especially with the cloud of Elsie's death still hanging over the Chinese community in New York. Ultimately, the judge agreed that Ida and Howard's home was not suitable for Anna, and as mentioned, sent her to a girls' home, the Brooklyn Training School and Home for Girls. This home had been created by an altruistic upper-class woman, Phoebe Maine, in the late 19th century. Maine wanted to create a similar home for girls that already existed for boys. Corporal punishment was not allowed, the girls were allowed to wear their own clothes as opposed to a uniform, and they received an education and job training. Mrs. Maine was adamant that the home was not to be a punishment, since 1890, the Brooklyn's Children's Court had been sending girls to the home, and the Brooklyn Daily Eagle often published an article explaining who and why. The first girl sent, Josie Springer, has an interesting story of her own, as she was sent for a judge for sending, quote, improper communications to a neighbor, end quote. But the girl's mother insisted that one of her boarders had dictated to the girl what to write, and that no one had told them where their daughter was sent or for how long. After seven months and various court appearances, all noted in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, Josie was returned to her parents' care. The judge who released her noted that the evidence for Josie having written the, quote, scurrilous postcard, end quote, was insufficient. There is no note of remuneration for the return of the child or the attorney fees that the family expended in getting her back. But to return to the story at hand, until 1901, the home was run with a lot of oversight by the Maine family. At this point, Phoebe Maine became too ill to fully supervise the home, and the local government became more involved. Nearly a decade later, Anna Hohen was sent there to live. What then became of Ida, Howard, and Anna? The census records reveal that Howard and Ida seemingly found success during their decades together. Howard went from working in a Chinese laundry in 1910 to owning his own Chinese restaurant by 1930. Howard's business progression actually follows a trajectory noted by historian Heather Lee and is related to changes in immigration law in the early 20th century. As mentioned, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 barred many Chinese laborers from entering the United States. But there were exceptions for certain merchants, businesses, and those exceptions allowed those of Chinese descent who worked in these industries a little more freedom in traveling back and forth to China. This exception, therefore, also led to the creation of Chinese businesses, especially in the early 20th century, laundries, like the one Howard worked in according to the 1910 census. In 1915, restaurants were added to this exception, and the number of Chinese restaurants in New York City doubled from 1910 to 1920, and then again from 1920 to 1930. By that point, 
Howard and Ida also had their own Chinese restaurant. They owned their own home, and some of Ida's sisters Henrietta's now adult children even lived with them. Overall, then, Ida and Howard seemed to have a long, happy, and prosperous marriage that continued until Ida's death in 1947. Our next record of Anna is from when she is 15 years old, so five years after she was removed from her aunt's care. She is living in Brooklyn with her mother and stepfather. By 1930, Anna's parents had relocated to Los Angeles, and it is there that her stepfather and mother passed away in the 1930s and 40s. For Anna, there is a record of a marriage in Brooklyn in 1916 between a Peter Rawl and an Anna Hohen, and it is possible that this is our Anna. If so, she married around age 17, and her husband was 18. Anna and Peter may have had to get married, as their oldest child, a son James, was born in 1917. According to the 1930 census, she and Peter were still married, living in Brooklyn, and had four children, but not their oldest child. James passed away in 1930 at the age of 13 and was buried in St. John's Cemetery, a Roman Catholic graveyard in Brooklyn. Anna and Peter also had been married in a Roman Catholic church, which potentially means that she switched from Baptist to Roman Catholic, or that the argument that her mother wanted her to be raised in a Baptist home as opposed to a Roman Catholic home was just also used to sway the judge. James's obituary in the Brooklyn Standard Union says that he died at home. Five years later, his father Peter, who had been a chauffeur for a coal company, was buried next to him at St. John after dying in an automobile accident. A year later, Anna married Henry Martinson, but the Brooklyn Daily Eagle continues to document sad moments for Anna. In 1937, listed as Anna Martinson, she found her brother Richard's dead body in the home they shared. And this story is also a little bizarre, because although found stabbed ten times, he was also next to a collection of electric materials, including needles attached to what they called an electric plug or a battery. And the police determined that it was suicide and not suspicious. According to the police, Richard was known to experiment with electricity. This, though, is the last we learn of Anna until she passed away around 70 years old in 1970, still living in New York City. It seems trite to say that life was hard in New York City around the turn of the century. I mean, for many, it still is, and the descendants and spouses of the Delancey family were not unique. Ida, Henrietta, Anna, they relied on family to help them through the very difficult times. But their support networks were deemed suspect by the biases of their time, Biases inflamed by the actions of a violent young man who came to stand for everything the larger community feared when he murdered a young woman. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.